0: years. I knew this day would come. Don't go to Haddonfield. If you want another victim, take me. But leave those people in peace. Please, Michael.
1: God damn you. <coughs>
2: Hello everyone and welcome back to The Pod and The Pendulum, your horror movie podcast that covers all horror movie franchises, one movie and one episode at a time. I am your host Mike Snoonian, joined once again by my co-host Jerry Smith.
3: Jerry, how are we doing tonight? I am so good. I am, you know, I say this before every episode, but this one in particular, I am so excited to talk about Halloween Four. Is like I was telling Mike before we start recording. This is the longest love of my life. Like I, I love John Carpenter's original film. I think it's the best film ever created. But Halloween Four is easily the first film that I just loved growing up, and I, I'm so excited to talk about it. So this was like a, a gateway for you, almost into that. Oh, most definitely, man! Like Halloween four, Halloween four opened up so much for me as it, so many regards. Like I love this movie with a passion. It's actually one of my top ten favorite movies of all time. Excellent! So this should be a really fun episode tonight. And Jerry, can you tell us who we're joined by tonight? We are joined by my good friend and multiple. I mean, he's been on the show multiple times, and every single time he's on the show, I am so excited. Uh, Justin Beam,
4: how's it going, man? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate mm-hmm. it. Happy to be back.
2: Happy to have you on. Yeah, last time we had you on was when we um, opened up our Friday the 13th franchise. So we're definitely excited to have you back on to do Halloween 4, which I think, you know, to Jerry's point, like I think everybody regards carpenter's movie is the best of the series i mean with good reason of course i mean that's it's kind of not even up for debate i would say um as much love as halloween 3 gets i'd still say like john carpenter's halloween is is one of the best horror movies one of the best movies of all time but for a lot of people halloween 4 is their favorite it's the one they go to to watch more than any other and it's because it's just like a
3: really fun slasher movie Well, that and uh, also, I mean, it's the one film out of the entire series that just invokes that Halloween spirit the most. And anyone that has, I mean, I'm an avid collector of all things Halloween. Like my wife was driven crazy this week because Target came out with this new special edition (laughs) and it added nothing. There's no special features whatsoever, but it's just (laughs) it's just the original and David Gordon Green's in one set on one one release. And I was like, oh, obviously I have to get this. And she's like, well, honey, don't you own like 10 copies of each of those movies? Well, yeah. Well, why do you need this one? Well, because it's another release, and anyone who collects the Halloween films like I do, I mean, you know, and I'm not just saying this because he's our guest, but anyone who collects that stuff knows that the commentary on Halloween Four and Halloween Five on those Blu-rays oh, are man. amazing, and Justin uh, Justin moderates those, and there's some of my favorite. I'm such a commentary junkie, and so having Justin talk about this episode or this this uh, sequel means a lot to me because. I mean, even before Justin and I became good friends, I was such an admirer of his commentary with uh, with uh, Alan McElroy for for the Halloween Four Blu ray. So
4: I am so excited for this episode. Uh, that was actually the Halloween Four. It was actually me and Dwight Little on that one. And oh, he, Dwight Little. That's
3: right. That's right.
4: Yeah, and and that was the first Blu ray that I ever produced. And that was when yeah. I was at you know, Trankis Films. And um, God, it was such an exciting moment. That and then part five just at the same time. Don Shanks, right? Shanks, yeah, exactly. And no one had ever yeah. brought Michael Myers to the commentary table before. And so I was really excited to to do both of these, but especially with Dwight. I think that – and Dwight's yeah, someone uh, who's kind of notoriously reclusive historically. Uh-huh. And it took a little bit of discussion to, to get him on board with it. But then once we were there, he and I just had a blast. And I, I set up a signing at Dark Delicacies in Burbank. I remember that. And I asked if he would appear at it. And he said, the only way he would is if I was on one side of him and his wife were on the other. (laughs) It was such a sweet thing. I'm like, of course, man. And so that's exactly how it went. I'm like, uh, well, I don't belong at this table. But if Dwight asks me, by God, I'm going to be there.
3: I remember I interviewed Dwight Little for uh, Icons of Fright back in the day when he directed an episode uh, from Dust Till Dawn TV show. And it was so hard because I love the show. But it was so hard not to spend 90% of the interview talking about Halloween 4 <laughs> or I, I, Rapid Fire with Brandon Lee, you
4: know? I had him my, on my podcast earlier this year, and I was just – he and I went in on, a, on a, a variety of different films that he's done over time. And he had so many great stories behind so many films. And it really – like this guy, as much as we all love him so much in the Halloween universe – He's done some really incredible work and some adventurous work outside yeah. of the franchise that, that shouldn't be missed. And so I encourage everyone to hit up Dwight Little's IMDB and dig deep. And it's worth investing in every single film that he's ever been a part of because the heart, the passion, and, and the meticulous skill that he brings to the table on every one of those projects is outstanding. And he and he's he's a real artist, absolutely. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I mean, his his film career is bookended. It's Halloween four and it's bookended by Free Willy, two. Correct.
4: <laughs>
2: yes. And I don't mean that as a slight. I mean, like Free Willy, two was like a hit movie. It wasn't like a I mean, it was like a follow up. I mean, like he got that. I mean, Free Willy was a massive hit. Back when and I had aged out of it a little bit, so you're not going to get handed a movie, you know, to follow that up if you're a slouch. Uh, And Free Willy Two was a hit in its own right, so it's it's not like my it's what's interesting to me is he's gone on to have a very prolific and steady career working in television. I wonder, Justin, if in your interview with him, if he ever kind of talked about um, how he got out of making feature films and kind of just got into making television.
4: I think that he became known and actually from the beginning, I think he was known as someone who could deliver on time and someone who could work within whatever framework the production needed. And I know that sounds like a relatively generic answer, but not every filmmaker can deliver that. Mm -hmm.
2: And so that's a big deal. I mean, that's no little thing.
4: Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it speaks to not only his ability to find his own artistry and, and sort of being okay with, whatever he's handed as much as it speaks to him being able to work within the framework of whatever's handed to him. So, um, and satisfy producers. So and then this is not uncommon. If you look in horror and Jerry, this might be a great topic for an article for you to explore at some point is a lot of horror directors who have maybe done one or two films here and there or spotty films, like one every three or five years or something. Many of them find great success in working in film or rather a uh, television or commercials. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there's a reason for that. So they're not necessarily brought in. I'm not saying Dwight little wasn't, but what, you know, maybe he wasn't brought into Halloween for because of marquee value. Right. But mm-hmm. he was brought in because of a vision and a proven track record of being able to deliver what everyone needs on time within the parameters he was assigned. So, yeah, and, and, and with something more than just sort of a, a passive voice, because I do consider Dwight's films to have Dwight's voice in them, every single one of them, and his television work as well. So in other words, he's sort of the best of all worlds for the people who are putting these things together. And he, while his legacy leans heavily in Halloween 4, again, I think if you were to look at his IMDb and look at the diversity there, that is not by accident. That is because a skilled craftsman can walk into any scenario and make it happen. Not everyone can do that. And Dwight can't. Well,
3: that, that, and I mean, he proved himself so well on Halloween four that, I mean, even as a child, I mean, as like a a teenager, a tween, you know, I went to the drive in in my local city to see rapid fire with Brandon Lee. And I didn't watch it because of Brandon Lee. I watched it because I was such a fan of Halloween four and I saw that it was the same director. You know what I mean? Like the pressure, the pressure that Dwight had with Halloween four going into it must have been monumental. You know, Carpenter and Deborah Hill and Tommy Lee Wallace, they took such a gamble on Halloween three. And while it paid off for people like myself that just adored the movie right from the get go, I mean, it bombed so badly. That like the whole franchise was in question, you know, and so the 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 not responsibility, but the pressure to come out with this fourth film that's going to bring back Michael Myers, bring back Dr. Loomis, these iconic characters, you know, like the pressure must have been monumental. And I just feel like Dwight Little and Alan McElroy for that fact, they just knocked it out of the park and I've always said right from the beginning, and I posted this on Twitter a little bit ago because I just want to give people a little <laughs> a little like you know warning. I think Halloween 4 straight up is a bad sequel to Halloween. But to, to be honest, I feel like the only sequel that I feel confident in saying it's a great sequel to the original is David Gordon Greens. But with that being said, I think Halloween 4 is one of the best horror films of all time on its own. There is so much to love about this film even outside of the Halloween franchise that, you know, McElroy and Dwight little together, they made such a film that just is so endearing to horror fans that it's impossible not to love it. And it does have its, it does have its detractors. It does have the people that don't like it. But with that being said, I feel like they're outnumbered dramatically by the people that just adore the hell out of this movie.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. I was watching a movie last night on Shudder. There's that new Movie haunt that just oh, love was it. released, which is really good. Like it was really enjoyable. Um, but I remember, like as I'm watching it, I, I just was thinking to myself, like I wish the tone of it was more like Halloween Four, knowing that we were going to record this. You know, I was thinking specifically, like, I really wish that the tone of Haunt overall in terms of its characters and how it's portrayed was more like Halloween 4, where there's a looseness to it overall. There's this kind of sense of, like, the characters in this movie, if they weren't, you know, set upon by the psycho killer, were pretty fun characters and pretty fun people to hang around with, where in Haunt, you have, like, a main character that is dealing with family trauma, um, and then you have like the, your typical asshole character who gets way too much screen time and is kind of hard to be around at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have like this storyline thrown in of like the abusive boyfriend uh kind of like lurking around the peripheral um it was a fun movie i thought it really nailed the ending And i would say anyone listening if you haven't given that movie a watch go to Shudder and do it but i'm like man how much more would i like this movie if it had characters like rachel and tina uh you know and just like these kind of like fun want to hang around wanted to be them when i was
3: about that age you know in high school type of character well that ends what I've always loved about Halloween 4 is and I'm not going to get into that on like recurring joke we have on the show about if you take Jason out of final chapter but what I've loved about Halloween 4 is that I love every single goddamn character in the movie even the annoying ones like Like, I want to see a movie just about them. And it's so rare to get a slasher movie or a horror film in general that you're so invested in the characters that you feel like a gut punch every time something bad happens. And I think that's one of the many things about Halloween 4 that I just love. You know, whether it's Jamie. I mean, who, you know, I wrote an article years ago for Icons of Fright about how Jamie Lloyd was always doomed from the beginning, you know? Like, right from the beginning, it seemed like the odds were against her. But in Halloween 4, you see what you don't see in a lot of horror films. They try to do it, but they don't succeed. And what Halloween 4 succeeds in is getting great character arcs for every single character in mm-hmm. the film. You know, Rachel starts out as a character that's very self-serving. She, she only cares about potentially bagging that dude that she likes. You know, she's so pissed that she has to babysit Jamie and all these different things. And, you know, by the end of the film, she puts her life on the line time and time again just to protect this kid that really isn't even her blood relative. You know what I mean? Like Halloween 4 has I mean, I hate to say it because Halloween is my favorite film of all time. But I think Halloween 4 has better character arcs than Carpenter's film, to be honest. Like there, there's so many characters that go I mean, all across the board and grow as the film goes on.
2: Yeah, I can't can't really argue with that. I mean, because, you know, your characters of Annie and, and Bob in Halloween, I mean, they're there. They're fleshed out. You get a really good feel for who they are as characters. But in the end, like they're there just to be served up to Michael Myers. Like they're never even aware that there's any sort of danger at all. Um, Mm -hmm. they spend the whole movie, not really worried that someone is after them. So there's really no arc to be had, um, for them. Although, you know, I think credit to Deborah Hill's writing, you get a really good feel for who those characters are when they're on screen and you like spending time with them again, like really important thing about like these movies is like, you just like spending time with these characters. And I think you see, (coughs) This, to me, is like one of the last really good slasher movies of the 80s. Um, and it, you start to see like a, a real shift where you don't necessarily like the characters going forward in a lot of the horror movies that come out in the wake of this movie overall.
4: I think that a lot of what makes Halloween 4 work is that the mythology of Michael Myers has already been established. And there was a transition between the original and Part 4, arriving in 1988 to movies being in many ways about the beast about the monster yeah. mm-hmm. all the people who had grown up a fan fans of the universal cycle of all these different like we grew up loving those things and not it's not to say that we didn't care about the characters that were around them but ultimately it became the monster that drew us to these franchises and those people were in power by the time 1988 rolled around mixed with the boom of practical effects and all the things that were possible at this time in that realm and as a result what came out of it were things like the blob remake and halloween 4 and a lot of different movies carpenters the thing really initiated the whole thing where we got a chance to more fully flesh out the monster because where they used to have to hide it in shadows and brief shots before now we could see it in, in all its glory and we could really explore the realms and push the boundaries of what was possible with these creatures. And I think Halloween 4 is a direct product of that. And I think that it arrived at the perfect moment where everyone was clamoring for more monster while simultaneously looking for some comfort food. And that was a return to, the, to sort of the storyline established in the original two with Michael Myers being involved.
3: Definitely, and uh, one thing that always just frustrated the hell out of me when David Gordon Green's film came out, you know, anyone that had dealt with trauma or PTSD in any regard wrote these very personal, wonderful articles about it, and I, I noticed, especially on Twitter, which can be a trash fire of an app, but I noticed that there were so many people just like completely slandering those people saying, "Well, you're looking too much into a slasher film. But I think Halloween 4, I will go to bat for that film as being a little more, a little deeper than what people give it on face value. Halloween 4 to me, even since a child, I mean, I was seven when I saw it in the theater, you know, I saw it in a very important time in my life where I needed something to identify with. And I think Halloween 4, even more than most of the movies in the series, is about identity. Jamie doesn't feel like she's a part of anything. I mean, her parents, you know, Lori and whoever the father was, I mean, some people could say Jimmy, some people could say someone else. Whoever her parents were, they were deceased. You know, she didn't know where she stood in life. You know, she didn't feel a part of this new family, the Carruthers family. She felt like she was a burden on all of them. The whole film is about Jamie just trying to find where she fits in. And that's even extended in Halloween 5, where, I mean, Michael, as awful and evil as he is, you still have Jamie basically pleading for him to be a part of her, you know, because that's all she knows. Uh, family, a familiarity of anything. And I think Halloween 4 does an excellent job of shining a light on a child that just wants to be a part of something. And it can be discounted as a slasher film, but I've never seen it as that. I see it as, like Friday the 13th, the final chapter, a film about characters, a film about how they react to the things around them. And I think the character of Jamie Lloyd, I mean, I think that's why I was so bummed out with Halloween 6. And especially Halloween Resurrection when it comes to Lori. These are characters that you're invested in and characters that you've gone on these really profound arcs with just to see them discarded later on in the series.
2: Right. Right. Yeah, they're just like especially the character. I think Jamie got particularly done very dirty with Daniel Harris not returning because they didn't want to pay her. Uh, really what she had earned after her performance in yeah. part four, part five. Um, to your point about it, not only about being identity and being a little bit deeper, it's also, to me, it's a movie about regret. Um, yeah. Very much when you look at the character of Doctor... And I think this is probably Donald pleasant's best performance overall um, as Doctor Loomis. Not Because you get kind of the best of both worlds. You get the doctor, you get the psychiatrist, you get the man of science there, but you start to also get that Captain Ahab uh, part of him as well. And you have someone who there's now been a space of 10 years between the night that Michael escaped and murdered 16 people and 10 years of him just being comatose and Loomis looking back at his career and his failure with Michael. Now he has nothing but time um, and every day you know that this is a man who's just tormenting himself, wondering what else could he have done in order to prevent Michael from escaping, in order to prevent Michael from going on that rampage. And it's very much, and we'll get to one scene in particular we'll get to, I think, later on when we get more into our discussion of the movie. But I think it's Pleasant's best performance is Loomis overall.
3: Oh, I, I agree 100%. And there, I, I'm And excited to talk about the scene that I know you're talking about, but I actually think there are two scenes in the film that really define where Loomis is in mm-hmm. Halloween 4, and I'm so, so excited to get into those.
2: So Dude, let's get back to the genesis of this movie overall. Uh, you know, Mustafa Akkad, who's really been kind of the shepherd of Michael Myers from day one, and as much as we associate John Carpenter and Deborah Hill with a character, by this time Carpenter and Hill have signed over all rights to Halloween over to Akkad. After Halloween 3 fails at the box office, Carpenter and Hill just sign over their rights to the movie. They, you know, cash out. Good for them. And Akkad is going to really be the person that's going to really caretake this series from now up until Halloween Resurrection. Um, and he was always someone that was very conscious of like where you know. Even though we we can debate the quality of the movies going forward, I think we always knew how important these movies were to uh, Mustafa or Akkad overall. But he's very clear in his marketing like this is going to be a return to the boogeyman this is going to be a return to michael myers so return is right there in the title return of michael myers leaving no doubt to anyone that came out of halloween 3 asking where was the shape nope it's right there on the poster also on the poster a giant picture of michael myers that dominates three quarters of the landscape overall Mm -hmm. letting fans know look this is what you wanted this is what we're going to give you make no mistake we're going to make sure that we get this right we want to give the fans what they want and there's what? also a little bit of a benefit here too. There's only been th- at this point three movies with Michael Myers with Halloween Four. By this point, like your other big slasher villain is Jason Voorhees, who has eight movie, uh, seven movies by this time, um, and he's kind of worn out as welcome.
3: Oh, d- definitely. And I also think that it's important to when talking about Halloween Four is that Carpenter and Deborah Hill. Didn't just kind of sign away everything. They had an idea for Halloween 4 with the wonderful writer Dennis Etchison. Uh, This idea that Haddonfield would kind of outlaw Halloween. You know, they would suppress the idea of Michael Myers and kind of try to erase what happened. And in doing that, Michael Myers would kind of be resurrected into this idea. It was more of a supernatural thing. And Akkad hated that idea. You know, he wanted Michael Myers to kind of be this flesh and blood killer from the first two films. You know, so that I think that is the point where Carpenter and Deborah Hill said, you know what, that's the direction you want to go. We're washing our hands of this. You know, we'll obviously get a paycheck, which they definitely deserved. You know, but, you know, kind of go on, do your own thing with that. And, you know, a Halloween 4 is so interesting in the sense that. In some ways, it has a lot of things going against it. I mean, when you, you know, we're, we're expected to give the suspension of disbelief, and I'm 100% able to. But I understand where some of its detractors would be like, well, the guy kind of got set on fire and shot in the eyes twice, and his eye poked in the first film. And he's been in a coma for 10 years, but he has no muscle atrophy whatsoever. He just gets up, and he's chill. You know, I understand that. But there's so much charm in the movie that I am so able to just say, I'm okay with that. You know what I mean? Like right from the beginning, right from that credit sequence, which I to this day think is one of the best opening credit sequences of all time. If you ever want an example of a film that just gives you the vibe of what it's going for right from the beginning, it's Halloween 4. It's impossible not to feel that beautiful tone of just the Halloween season when watching this film. And I, I think walking into it, Akkad, Dwight Little, I mean, Alan McElroy, they all knew exactly what they were trying to get. And I think it's, it's, it's a film that right from the beginning, right from production standpoint, it, it just they succeeded so well in capturing what they wanted to.
4: Yeah, without a doubt. I think that that opening sequence is the quintessential when it comes to presenting what it's like to grow up in the Midwest in fall.
0: Mm -hmm.
4: And I'm from Iowa. I still live in Iowa and I I can speak directly to this, that so many movies and I think haunt is one that gets this right as well. My buddies actually wrote and directed that movie. Um, They're from Iowa also. And so few movies actually understand what it's like to have Halloween, to have fall and the colors and everything. There's, so many movies I love that are part of the season, like Jacob, like Carpenter's Halloween, but granted he's coming from more of an Eastern perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, there's all these movies that are out there, but very few of them really nail what it's like to live in the Midwest and to, to have Halloween in, in this season. And I think that this opening in Halloween 4 is 100% definitive in terms of, you want to know what it's like? Here it is. And from mm-hmm. the... From, from Alan Howarth's airy score to open the film, which is less score and more almost like soundscape, mm-hmm. to the, the perfect locations they found with the dummies and the scarecrow and mm-hmm. the farm implements, all this. This is what I am surrounded by all day, every day, year round, but especially in the fall do I pay attention to these things. And so it nails it 100%, Jerry. I, I couldn't agree more well that and i mean even walking
3: to a production standpoint you have people i mean in the halloween series you get people that eventually took on the roles of writer or director that kind of didn't have that affinity for the series but they were just trying to do their own thing Whereas when you come with alan mcelroy i mean he was an ohio native you know he's from ohio he knew exactly what that kind of feeling would be he was a massive fan of the original haven't seen it in boston growing up he you know he went and saw halloween 3 right when it came out this was somebody that actually adored the two films with michael myers before it so i think that while some people might see it as fan service when a fan takes on a series i personally think it's a really great uh angle get someone who loves the series and loves the characters that they're writing to write the film, you know, and Michael McElroy, you can tell right from the script that he loves the first two films, you know, and that was his jumping point to start the fourth film. You know, Akkad wanted him to do pretty much a continuation of, you know, the Michael Myers storyline. So why not get someone that just loves those characters, to take it on. And I think that that love and adoration towards the first two films really shows.
2: No
4: doubt. No doubt.
2: I think, too, one of the things I really like about the opening sequence is not only does it set up the season and it establishes right away that it's Halloween, it moves away from the Carpenter motif of the pumpkin opening, which we saw through the first three movies with varying degrees. You have the pumpkin, then the pumpkin with the skull, then the digital pumpkin. Now you just have these beautiful opening shots of what is supposed to be Haddonfield. It also shows Haddonfield as a much more rural and much more isolated town. I think those first couple of minutes really, is something eerie about watching them. Like, Haddonfield seems like this place that is kind of, like, far off and not easy to get to and not easy to access in and out. Um,
4: in that's the first... The, I mean, honestly, in the Midwest, that's the, that's the deal. Mm-hmm. Our towns yeah. are so spread out. And, and, and I don't... There, there are many, many miles between, and mm-hmm. so it establishes there's a, na- I mean, what makes this place perfect for this, and why John set the first movie in Illinois in the first place, mm-hmm. is that there's natural seclusion built into this, where the police station would not have immediate backup. Where- but
2: those first two movies never really have a sense of seclusion because of, you know, they're filmed in Pasadena, and it looks like a small town, but it doesn't feel like it's isolated from everywhere
4: else. This well, feels. Carpenter Harp- never invested in in the in, in establishing the the world of Haddonfield
0: mm-hmm.
4: you know what I mean like his, his story was about the people and that's that's John's specialty he understands people so well
0: mm-hmm.
4: and, and he did create Haddonfield technically but this is the first movie to take you outside the sort of like yeah. the, the outside of the, the sort of the town um, what would you say geography into the realm or, of what's around it which you find out here is as sparse as would be expected in the Midwest. And so that works so well. And in a way, it's nice that the the first two were established the way they were, and that we get to the third film involving this mythology. And now is when we get to zoom out a little bit, because by now, as I mentioned earlier, and to beat this horse to death, the term mythology, the mythology around Michael Myers and the shape is firmly established. And that began with part two, the nurses talking in the parking lot. Everybody's sort of like murmuring about what may or may not be happening, what they heard, you know, rumors about what might be going on with Michael Myers and stuff. And now it has become part of the lore of the area. And that is, I mean, like lore, mythology, word of mouth, and rumor, those things are are like scripture in small towns. Uh-huh. And, and here in the Midwest, this would be the defining, I mean, I just shot, I, had two, I got interviewed for two different things a few weeks ago in Villisca, Iowa. I chose the location. In Villisca, Iowa, in like 1920, there was uh-huh. a murder of eight people, a, a, a notorious unsolved axe murder of eight people. And it is arguably the thing that, the only thing that Villisca is known for, and one of the few things that Iowa is even known for. So it's this notorious thing that is, all these years later, the shingle that that town hangs its hat on when it comes to why people come to that area. There's literally no other reason to go there short of visiting the axe murder house. You know what I mean? Uh So, so for me, this mythology makes absolute sense. And I think that the way that they set it up in Halloween four is, is perfect. So I'm I'm sorry to interrupt, but all of that, Uh just, just to say that it's a, it's a real masterstroke. Mm -hmm. Also,
3: uh, you know, we, we talked about multiple times in the Friday 13th series of this podcast about how it was obvious what was filmed, you know, geography-wise, you know, other than the other films, uh, it is obvious in Halloween Four that it wasn't filmed in Pasadena. And while the Friday Thirteenth films, when they strayed from the where the original few movies were filmed, it was noticeable in a negative way. I feel like Halloween Four benefits from filling kind of that small town vibe that Salt Lake City kind of gave you know, for being filmed there. I think Halloween four kind of reduces what we've seen in the first two films into a small, you know, a small town kind of vibe that makes it even easier to get on board with the characters that it's presenting you with.
2: I think too, that this movie lets you see the scars of the town and you Mm -hmm. see the impact that that night in 1978 had, um, That the first two movies, I mean, and it makes sense. Like in the first movie and the second movie, Michael Myers is known as a six-year-old boy that killed his sister. And, yep, that is very horrific and a really terrible thing. But I think that if you were from that town, you would almost always see him as that six-year-old boy and not necessarily be afraid of him. Um, In this movie, Michael Myers is a grown-ass man who's killed 16 people in the span of one night. And he is forever going to be that town's boogeyman at that point. Um, and you can see the scars and you can see the impact that that night had on had and feel as a whole. And I really,
3: really like that about this movie. Well, that, and there's, there's a lot of aspects that, I mean, even as a kid, I identified with, I mean, dramatically, I mean, Jamie living in the shadow of what her uncle was, you know, that was such a, a tough thing to watch as a kid. You know, my mom, had a history of drug abuse and various other things. And she kind of, there was a fugitive on the loose that was a friend of hers, and she hid the fugitive under our truck when I was a kid. And the cops found the fugitive and found, you know, and arrested my mom for it. For, so for the longest time growing up in the small town that I did, I was forever known by my mom. You know what I mean? Like, and it was nothing I could kind of get rid of. You know, and I, I've always identified with the character of Jamie. I mean, right from that opening scene—kind of not opening scene, but the scene at the the school where all these mm-hmm. kids are kind of brutally just being cruel yeah. to her. About there's a real that, meanness to that. Oh, it's so mean spirited. You know, but that this this cruelty of who her uncle was that had absolutely nothing to do with who she was as a mm-hmm. person. I mean, right from the beginning, this poor kid and this poor character. Right. You know, like had no chance whatsoever. And I feel like that tragedy of the character made it that much easier to kind of get on board and kind of almost live vicariously through that character.
2: It's a real bookend to the scene in the first movie where Tommy Doyle is tormented by some kids coming out of the school where their boogeymen are gonna get you, the boogeyman's mm-hmm. gonna get you. Now you not only have Jamie being you know, how they you know make fun of how she's related to Michael Myers, but then they taunt her for being an orphan. I mean, there's a real, real meanness and real edge to that scene where this poor seven-year-old girl is being tormented not only for who she's related to, but for the fact that she has two dead parents.
3: Well, that – and also, I mean, I I said earlier about uh, Halloween 4 is in a lot of ways about identity and wanting to fit in. I mean, it even shows later in the film when Jamie sees those same kids that just mercilessly – just brutally made fun of her for it. And what does she does? What does she do when she sees those kids later on? She completely just washes it away and goes trick or treating with those kids mm-hmm. because she wants to feel like she's a part of something. Cause she doesn't, mm-hmm. all she has to go off of is her parents died. This adopted family took her in her, her adopted sister doesn't really want to be around her in her eyes. And you know she just wants to feel a part of something so i mean i always found such there's a, such a tragic element to the part later on in the film where she goes trick or treating with this very same kids that completely just demolished her mm-hmm. as a human being for who her uncle was
2: what do we think of myers introduction in this movie he's been comatose for 10 years he's now in this mental institute being transferred out i don't know what it is about why he has to be transferred at halloween night all the time but sure there we are and then you have this great line by the security guard i think that really establishes kind of the tone of the movie when they when the two ambulance uh when the two guards transporting michael say you know like jesus he's like jesus has nothing to do with this place um i love that moment and it sets this real fear right away
4: sure. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a uh, good... Well, the, the, there's the known background about Michael's history in these places, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's it's established that he had spent his youth there. And so, just, I mean, outside of the television version of Halloween, where they added the footage in with Michael and the institution and everything. But it's not really explored historically. And so this is giving us a peek into just how brutal that environment was. Mm-hmm while it's definitely sort of a caricature of what this world is actually like, in a way, it it further, I guess, pushes us into the realm of a little bit of understanding, which is what this, I mean, everything from part two forward in the original series of films is ultimately about understanding. And there's great effort made for the audience to understand Michael, for whatever reason. And as much as this may be Jamie's movie and whatever else, I mean, really, again, as I said earlier, the monster is very much the focal point in these things. And by this point, it was very much about Michael. And so this gives us a glimpse into into the life that he had been forced to live for so long. And uh, I think it's a a really, it's rare that asylum scenes are effective in movies. I think that Bram Stoker's Dracula, Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, really and with uh, Tom Waits, And everything else involved with that that effectively establishes it i think this does where most slasher movies especially which really use this trope over and over and over again so few of them take time to present this kind of stuff with any kind of reverence or any kind of consideration and i feel like halloween Four does i think that in a brief moment even though they don't spend much time there it tells you what you need to know about what michael's been through And also, what has been feeding him, leading into all the events that were to follow. Mm -hmm.
2: And by '88, too, you're still you're starting to see the era of these places being of of mental health patients being deinstitutionalized as well. That your mental health population is no longer just being thrown into what is essentially a prison and then shut away from the rest of the world um, by this point what you know what you would see in a few years is most of this population the non-criminal population would have been put in residential homes like they would have a small group environment they would have residential caretakers so you're gonna see a, a shift in just how this population is going to be treated in the real world overall and you don't you do get enough in this movie to see, I get a real sense of fear from this population with the screaming and that there's the one patient that is being let out in the straitjacket early on. Um, so it's different. I mean, without being too over the top, well, it's effective without giving you too much and going too overboard in its depiction.
3: Mm. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree a hundred percent. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean that, and I mean, right from the beginning, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm notoriously not a fan of the sister angle in part two. And I, I feel like that's uh, rendered the entire series problematic from that point on, the family thing. I don't want an explanation. But with that being said, I've even as a kid, I always found it fascinating that that is the moment where Michael decides to get up. You know, mm-hmm. is the moment he finds out that he has a niece and that he has another family member out there. And I, I think it's, it's so interesting that, you know, you have someone that's kind of, I mean, you don't know if he's in a coma or not. You know, he, he sat there staring at those walls for how many years in the first film? You know what I mean? He could very much have been just doing the same, you know, between mm-hmm. two and four. And it's that one moment where, you know, the ambulance drivers are, are kind of talking about Jamie that Michael decides – it is now time to wake up and go back to Haddonfield. And I think mm-hmm. it's such a cool, just really awesome moment in the film that really just jumpstarts the rest of the movie.
2: And I think, too, the movie does a really good job of establishing these little connections between Michael and Jamie right away, and it really foreshadows the end of the movie in a way where it doesn't feel like a cheat Um starting with the kind of like the dream that Jamie has early on where she sees the ambulance outside of her um, outside of her front door where basically probably moments after it would have like crashed in the swamp, right. Mm-hmm. I think that the choi- her choice of getting like the clown outfit, um, unbeknownst to her, knowing that that's what Michael would have worn when he was the same age as her and killed for the first time. I think there's a lot of little moments like that that establish the connection between the two characters that feels really well developed
3: as opposed to a real cheat. Well, that and I mean, you know, even more than just the uh, telepathic connections that they kind of tried to do at the end of four and a little bit of five. I think it also speaks on genetics. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm not telepathic whatsoever, but I deal with a lot of the same hindrances that a lot of my family members dealt with as far as mental illness and that kind of thing. You know, I think everyone is so quick to jump to part five's kind of telepathic connection, but you know, even taking that kind of stuff out Jamie is very much connected to her uncle, you know, Michael Myers. And that I think that deals with a lot of the same tendencies. I think that deals with a lot of the same uh, mental issues. And I I've never I've never liked the telepathic connection, but I've always understood why those little tendencies were there because growing up, I felt those same tendencies to a lot of my family members. You know, what I mean? like I had an uncle that was that very much became an alcoholic later on in life and kind of went through a lot of mental illness. And you know, I I kind of discounted that as a kid. As an adult, I went through the same kind of things. And it was only then that I kind of saw Halloween 4 in a different light. It's not the telepathic stuff that connects Jamie to Michael. It's those genetics. And I think that Halloween 4 does a good job of showing that kind of your family genetics and your family kind of DNA strands – come to play later on, even if you're not directly influenced by those people. Um, so what do we think overall,
2: you know, speaking of Michael, what do we think overall of George Wilbur's performance as Michael Myers? It's much different from that. What we saw with Nick Castle, um, excuse in, in part one, um, it's a much different kind of shape that we have in this one over here. It's almost Michael Myers, he's much closer to what we see out of Jason Voorhees, an almost undead superhero at this point with his strengths. But what do we think of moving in this direction overall?
4: Yeah, I think it's very much the product of its time. And that's similar conversation to what I mentioned earlier about the effects world and the sort of one-upsmanship that was happening from film to film at this point with the practical effects. So I think there was a bit of keeping up with the Joneses when it comes to what they were wanting mm-hmm. this and what they were needing to do. And for whatever reason, right or wrong, I always got the feeling that the people involved with this felt that, that they couldn't tell a story like was told in parts one and two mm-hmm. in, in 1988, that that was not appropriate for audiences at that point And that they might've needed something a little more, um, a, a little bigger, a little more bombastic. And, and even when they were shooting this, I mean, a lot of the crazier stuff in this film was added after the fact. Uh-huh. So Dw- Dwight Little still very much kept it within arm's length. He, he didn't allow the film. I mean, it wasn't all thumbs through foreheads and throat rips when he was making the movie that all that stuff was shot afterwards, uh-huh. it, which speaks further to the keeping up with the Joneses aspect of this. If they're testing the film, and it's testing next to a Friday the Thirteenth Part Whatever and whatever else was out at the time. I mean, a subtle sort of haunted maniac story isn't gonna isn't gonna cut it for a lot of audiences who are looking for more and louder and bigger and bloodier. And so what happened here is that they took the nastier side of Halloween Two and made that the focal point in a lot of ways. And what but. I think what's amazing about this film and what's amazing about when you, when you're talking about the, per, the performance of Michael and the presentation of him is that he is less human than he's ever been before. So at this point, like in the original, there was a lot of ambiguity about what's his motive in the mm-hmm. second film. Of course they establish what the motive is for him at that point. By the time four comes around, Michael really is. He's almost like zombie Jason where he's equal parts mythology and and monster not as much man and so i think that it makes sense the way that they've handled him with this one and the way that wilbur portrayed it because he needed to be a completely unsympathetic character where if you were to watch I mean, if you start getting into the psychology of the first two films and thinking about Michael's perspective on things and what he had been through and what might be motivating him, I think that it can lead you down a lot of roads that might go into the, the realm of empathy to some extent. Whereas mm-hmm. by the time part four came, they wanted to wash that away completely and give and you another franchise. And that's, that's what Wilbur and everyone here established was a franchise. hmm yeah, and
3: it's very much very supernatural and kind of ghostly feeling in four. You know, it, it's not the kind of human slash pure evil vibe of the first two. I think Wilbur's Michael Myers in four is very in the shadows, almost like like I've always. He never does it, obviously, but even as a kid, I very I felt that portrayal of Michael Myers kind of floating. In, if that makes sense, you know, kind of like there. You know, just kind of floating in the air, going towards people, whereas the first two films, you know, Nick Castle and, you know, uh, Dick Warlock, were very much kind of walking towards you. Where it feels like four is it four feels like he's going to be there no matter where you are.
4: You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And they got knocked. He got knocked around a lot in the first couple. Kind of like Friday the 13th part two, where Jason, I mean, he spends half the movie on his ass. Yeah. and, and it's a similar thing. In the original, too, he's humanized to the point of being fallible. And whereas uh-huh. when part four came around, he's bending shotguns in half. And again, cramming his thumb into someone's forehead to murder them. So it's it, right from the start. And, and what's interesting, when you consider the timeline of production, is that that whole sequence, all that Beakler stuff with the thumb and whatnot, that came after everything else was already shot. And so that uh-huh. was 100% conscious effort to start the film on that note and for your first experience with Michael to be something that you have not seen before and to push him into the realm of Jason as, a mm-hmm. piece, as opposed to sort of like the grandfather figure, which is an interesting yeah. thing to consider. Well, that, I mean, that kind of goes with what
3: I was saying at the beginning, as far as I've always felt that Halloween four, wasn't a really good sequel to Carpenter's film, but a very great movie on its own. This Michael Myers, does it, it doesn't feel anything like the Michael Myers or the shape of the first two films. It's very much its own thing. And the only moment in the film that I feel like feels like that classic Michael Myers is, uh, you know, I, I know we were going to talk about this moment later on, but uh, the moment where Loomis comes across Michael Myers in that diner, you know, you know, it's it's Loomis's first encounter with Michael Myers after all these years. You know, after, after a decade of wondering and fearing that Michael would come back, Loomis is face-to-face with him in a diner. He sees him, and what does he do? What does Loomis do, this man that has spent his entire career basically pleading to save everyone from this person? He begs. He begs Michael Myers to take him instead of going back to Haddonfield. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I love the Carpenter's Halloween more than any film in the entire history of cinema. But I think that moment in Halloween four is my favorite moment in the entire series, because there is a defeated feeling on Loomis that just, just says, I can't do this again. You know what I mean? Like I can't go through this again. I'm not able emotionally or physically to do this. You know, if it, Saves those people, just kill me. And I, I feel like that's the one scene that you see Michael just kind of standing there, kind of like that hedge scene in the first film. You see him standing there, and it, it feels very much like the Michael Myers of the first two films. Uh, aside from that, it doesn't feel like that at all, in my opinion.
2: I would second you and say that. I think this might that might be my favorite moment of the whole series, and it might mm-hmm. be Pleasance's best moment. In all the in all the Halloween movies that he appeared in, um, because there's just this desperation in his voice, and also resignation that he knows his words are falling on empty ears. That, he, mm-hmm. that Michael is so far gone and has no intent of listening to him at all, and that that damn you, Michael, and then raising the gun. He does not want to shoot Michael. You can tell, like, this isn't the Loomis of part one and two that is running around with a six-shooter, like, having to have it pulled away from him. Um, This is someone – he does not want to fire that gun at that moment, but he knows there isn't any other choice. Like, there's nothing he can do to ever
3: reach Michael at this point, and he knows it. Well, there's that heartbreaking tone in his voice when he says that, that damn you Michael thing you know where it's like you know that he knows that as much as much pleading as he does to Michael that it's not going to work and there's that moment of saying you know what this I'm going to have to do this again and you could tell it on Donald Pleasant's face and in the way he delivers that line that he knows that this is going to be the fight of his life and in that very moment in Halloween 4 when he's looking at Michael and he says those lines you know that Loomis if you look in his eyes, you know that Loomis knows that he will die trying to like stop Michael Myers. Hmm. You know that that is his life's
4: meaning at that moment. It even predates that in the film to me. It's when they encounter the – he gets the call and they encounter the ambulance turned over under the bridge. Mm-hmm. And Loomis walks up to it and you see him sort of considering – the remnants of the, the chaos that had ensued there. And you see th- this desperation in him, how he, start, how he moves goes from kind of slow and methodical to more frantic and mm-hmm. getting, you know, you know we, we've got to stop him and we've got to get there. Like Haddonfield is where he's going and we don't know where he's going, but Loomis is like, no, he's headed to Haddonfield. Like, this is legit. There's no clearer sign that we need. And that's the moment where the fear in him really begins to grow. And mm-hmm. that's not something that happens a lot. If you think about cinema as a whole, doctors usually are either nefarious or they have their shit completely together. It's rare that a doctor, especially one with a, with a close connection with a main character, is allowed to go. Well, wait a minute. This is completely out of hand. Mm-hmm. Really, have that happen, and for them to feel, for the audience to feel along with them, that they are completely behind the ball for the rest of the time. Like they are truly chasing the dragon as opposed to the one who always knows because adults, doctors, police, everyone's always presented as either distrusting the youth or always, you know, like on top of things or mm-hmm. planning out the 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 sting or whatever it might be. But here it's absolutely not the case. In fact, the authorities in all the Halloween films are usually almost irrelevant to what's happening. Loomis mm-hmm. Loomis is their conduit to the reality of what's happening. And and it, and so he, if we were to compare it to something like the original Blob, it's like Loomis is Steve McQueen and the rest of the kids saying, this shit's real. And then the police are on the other side going, we'd rather play chess and cut joke because you kids are a pain in the ass. But it's Loomis who they're talking to here as opposed to the kids because the kids in this world are are absolutely terrified and and they're they're screaming for help but just to those immediately close to them which is very weak you know what i mean well, the,
3: there's also two things that i think are uh, that very important to address you know we we talked about in the past episodes how loomis in the first film is kind of telling Brackett to kind of have his people kind of be chill and not worry about it kind of you know kind of like keep it quiet or else everyone will see him on every corner kind of thing by 1988 when halloween 4 comes loomis knows where he went wrong with those first, you know, that first night, you know, in 1978. Mm-hmm. So that is where his shift comes from going, you know, no, keep it quiet, to everyone needs to be alert. That, and I, I feel like it's always such an easy target for people to. And I will mention this more in the next episode for Halloween 5. But I think it's an easy target for everyone to say, well, Loomis is batshit crazy in Halloween 5. He's crazier than Michael Myers. How could he not be after all this shit? You know what I mean? Like, he has spent his entire career. And after thinking that it was done in 1978, in 1988, he's added again and goes through the hell that is Halloween 4. You know, I, I you know, we can all say that we would be stronger Emotionally, but I would break in 1978, let alone 1988, having to deal with all this shit again. You know what I mean? Like, how how could Loomis not be off his rocker by then?
2: And I think that really speaks to how there are victims outside of the ones that are just stacked up as a body count. And I think Mm -hmm. that you see. You know Loomis's degeneration, like his the way his sanity degenerates over time, over the course of these movies. You know, I think when you see Sheriff Brackett in Part Two, like completely crumble when he uncovers Annie's body, Uh, and I think that's a really nice touch in these movies to see how, and I think it's one of the flaws of this movie is that the sheriff in this movie at the end, Sheriff Meeker, he's sitting with Jamie's family in the last scene after he's lost. And like, nothing is really like, Ooh, we dodged a bullet there. You never get this sense. Does he even know that his daughter has been killed at this point? Or, you know, he's just sitting there with the family and I never got a sense that he knew that she had died. Do you know what I mean? Like that's
0: Mm -hmm. one
2: of the, you know, and I really like that, with Loomis, you see this degeneration in his own mental state. And you see how, not only his mental state, but his status. You see, when Dr. Hoffman talks about Loomis, he writes him off as a quack. He's like, you know, his position is largely ceremonial. Now that Myers is being transferred, we hope that he'll retire or die. Like, nobody wants Loomis around at this
3: point. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I also think that, I mean, you know... I haven't seen it in years, so I mean, I think I'm due for a revisit. But I think that that portrayal of kind of filling the aftermath of what happened to you is really prevalent in Brad Drift's uh, uh, performance as Sheriff Brackett in Rob Zombie's mm-hmm. Halloween, 2. I mean, you know, even I mean, like I said, I haven't seen it in a long time, so I don't think I'm, I'm suited to kind of put a really good analysis on it. But, I mean, even though I didn't really care for it upon initial, like, viewing, that scene always broke my heart. Because, I mean, you see what it feels like. You see the aftermath of someone losing someone close to them because of this. You know, the kind of, like, what could I have done differently? You know, when Brad Dura finds Annie in Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, I think it's also one of the most heartbreaking moments in the entire series. mm mm-hmm. You know, and I, I even as a child, I mean, I agree with you 100 percent. Even as a kid, I, I kind of thought it was weird that kind of, you know, Sheriff Meeker was just kind of like chill at the Lloyd house, you know, at the end of four, knowing that his daughter basically got impelled with a shotgun.
2: Mm-hmm. And speaking of, you know, not kidding, speaking of getting impaled with a shotgun, um, <laughs> So, Justin, you had mentioned, you know, Beekler, uh, who did some of the effects work on Halloween 4. And this is coming off of directing Friday the 13th, Part 7, The New Blood, which is a movie that is notorious for getting hatcheted to pieces by the MPAA. And yeah. it's interesting that. Uh, Halloween 4 gets by relatively unscathed overall. There is a lot of graphic content in this movie. Uh, You know, when you were putting together the supplemental materials for Halloween 4 and 5, did you come across anything that kind of spoke to why these movies were allowed to slip under the radar? Was it just that Friday the 13th had become such like a, a, a beacon for everything that they didn't like the MPA did not want to see in movies that all of their attention was laser focused on this and Michael had been out of the picture since 1981. Like what was the reason why Halloween four could get away with a bit more?
4: When it came to these Blu-rays, the folks that were behind them really didn't want to invest anything. In fact, I had to convince them to even to have the the single commentary track on each one that I did. So mm-hmm. I didn't have the opportunity to include a lot of content that I would have loved to have included on both of these. However, I, I think that what happened was exactly what you said, that the Friday the 13th franchise had become the pariah. And that is where everyone was sort of laser focused within the MPAA. And so they're hatching these movies apart and for for really no good reason other than, what, maybe to send a message or something. but. For whatever reason, a lot of other movies sort of got to sneak around the the system within that time frame because of how everybody was hawking around Friday the thirteenth. So I do think you're correct in that regard that it's
0: mm-hmm.
4: just the Friday the thirteenth influence is really what it was. That's the looming sort of bad boy in the room as opposed mm-hmm. to Halloween being being acknowledged as that.
2: Yeah. And this is the first Halloween, I mean Halloween three is also really graphic and it's violence overall, but it's a much different kind of violence. You know, before this, like, Myers, outside of the, I think, the hot tub scene, by and large, it's just a a poke him type of killer, like poke him with a knife and watch him bleed. Here you get, like, a real variety to the kills overall. You have a head-crushing scene. You have the thumb through the forehead. You have a shotgun impalement. Um, It's, you know you have a guy pissing in a bush shotgunned to death by his <laughs> friends. Yeah. Oh, that gets me every time. So it's just interesting that this one has a much more, a much wider variety of kills overall. It's pretty interesting.
4: It is. Yeah, for sure. And I think that what is often overlooked about the first two films though, too, is that there, you know, what's more horrifying, the fact that someone kills someone else for the fact that they delight in the process
0: mm-hmm.
4: and the playfulness that Michael has in staging the bodies, in setting things up for the pranks when doors open and a body falls down, like
0: mm-hmm.
4: think about and and I, I guess behind the mask kind of alluded to this in a strong way as as a rarity. But when you think about what it would entail for him to have to do this to mm-hmm. pull all these insane pranks with the bodies of dead people and stuff like that, like that's.
0: Mm-hmm. that's
4: in many ways is sicker than just pure murder. And so that it's not new that Michael is delighting in the bizarre and the arcane that began with the very first film. What's new here is that we're keeping the camera on him as he does his nasty parts. And that mm-hmm. with part two and has expanded with part four. I think in Jerry, you
2: and I talked about that a bit when we did our Halloween one episode, we kind of debated whether Michael really understands what he's doing? Like, does he think like, Oh, this is all in good fun and it's all a prank and we're going to, this is the trick part of trick or treat. Or does he, you know, is there, it's like this almost like some childlike thing to him overall. He doesn't quite fully grasp what he's doing. And I, and I, I really like that you kind of hit on that, Justin, that, you know, there is this playful, kind of side to Michael that there's maybe that's the reason he only kills on Halloween um, is because like he gets to do tricks on people and it's acceptable
3: for him to do so. Right. Well, what, what what I also think about Michael Myers uh, and it's interesting because it's a fairly new movie. I, I think maybe like 10 or maybe 12 years old is I kind of associate Michael Myers with the character of Sam for trick or uh, from trick or treat. Mm hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's not maliciousness per se. It's more of like Sam kind of embodies that spirit of Halloween, that trick or treat thing. You know what I mean? It's not like calculated like I'm going to ruin this person's life. It's the spirit of Halloween. And I feel like Michael is pure evil. And, it, you know, what does evil like to do other than destroy And I think part of playing those tricks on Halloween is part of destroying the fun of it. And I I, I think uh, Michael Myers, I don't think he really kind of knows what he's doing per se. But at the same time, I feel like there's this kind of devilish satisfaction that comes from setting up these kind of horrible horror pieces.
2: I think you're right. Yeah. And I I think that I, I think that you can look at those two characters is like different sides of a very similar coin overall. Um, so I, I would like to move on a little bit if that's all right, if we can sure. maybe talk a little bit about the human character. We talked about Loomis, uh, but I want like to talk about the team characters a little bit, Rachel um, in a Daniel Harris is Jamie um, in a little tip and a little nod to a non-returning Jimmy Lee Curtis. Um Because I think Daniel Harris gives maybe the best child performance of any kid in a horror movie in all of the 80s and early 90s overall.
3: Well, I I think one of the biggest uh, tragedies in the the Halloween series, uh, I mean obviously Laurie getting killed off. I mean, just completely unceremoniously in uh, Halloween Resurrection, but I also think the jump from Halloween Four to Halloween Five is one big uh, a big one for me. You get a character like Jamie Lloyd who is so identifiable and relatable in Halloween Four, and you know you care for that character. And Daniel Harris gives such a good por- performance in Four, and you go to Five, and there's so little to work with. And I, I think that that's one of the many things about uh, Halloween Four that really works for it is that Daniel Harris is just, she's great in Halloween Four. You know, she's so, it, it doesn't feel like acting. A lot of times in horror films, you could tell, uh, you know, it's a fun film, but it definitely feels like acting. I think when it comes to Halloween Four, the performance that doesn't feel like acting whatsoever is Jamie Lloyd's character. You know, it's, it's so relatable. Mm-hmm. And I, I think. That that and the chemistry she has with Ellie Cornell's performance as Rachel Carruthers, it's hard not to feel emotionally invested in those characters. Because like I said, there's an arc. You know, Rachel at the beginning doesn't care. She only cares about herself. By the end of the movie, she's so like, you know, she's so on top of just putting herself on the line for Jamie that I mean, it's hard not to love this movie because it gives you so much character-wise to latch onto.
4: I think that it also is, it's exploring taboos in a way that the, the movies that came before didn't. Uh, mm-hmm. and fact, I see that in part one and two, because part three is very much in the same vein of preying on children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where a lot of our, a lot of our sort of Grimm's fairy tales focus on terror for children, a lot of what we experience and a lot of what we create does not. And this is a movie that absolutely revels in that. And to a greater extent, part five, I mean, part five is straight up. I mean, it's almost 90 minutes of child abuse in terms of how Jamie is treated in that movie and how Loomis makes a pawn out of her. So I agree with you in terms of the leap from four to five, like on many fronts, it is, it is a drastic shift for everyone involved. And I think that part of what makes part four work so well is that we're Halloween 2 has really, I, I would say, the only real character development or sort of character augmentation is between um, is between Laurie and, um, what's his name? the uh, Jimmy. And Jimmy. Outside of those two, it, it's just non-existent. But with Halloween 4, you really are spending the bulk of the running time with Danielle and Ellie as mm-hmm. Jamie and Joel. And you're seeing them... moments that a lot of movies don't allow you to spend much time with people in and that's yes they're fleeing from michael but they're doing it through a suburban landscape they're not stuck in a building they're not on a boat they're not wherever you know i mean like they're they it's a further exploration of the terror in suburbia concept that john originally explored in in the in the first halloween because part two is isolated in the hospital. That's still relatively foreign to most people. Whereas moving through your neighborhood streets, over the fences between houses, mm-hmm. um, and all this, this is all very, very relatable again. And so we're spending the bulk of the running time on, on foot with Jamie and Rachel dealing with whatever happens to come their way. So it isn't just Michael. It's everything. It's their entire environment that's around them that that works against them. But I think that those two are really ultimately the heart of this movie more than Donald, more than Michael, more mm-hmm. than else. it's Ellie and Danielle that are the engine behind Halloween four.
2: And you also get to see the inner workings of, of Jamie in this movie too. You get to see what, what, not what motivates her, but what, what she's afraid of outside of just Michael. And you see that in that dream early on when she, In her dream, she says to Rachel, like, do you love me like a sister? And dream, Rachel says, well, you know that we're not really sisters. And to what you had said before, Jerry, this like real fear of being alone and not being a part of something is so deeply entrenched in in her, which how could it not be at that age losing, you know, what she's lost? And then when her foster parents find her... She's in her closet clutching that box of mementos to her uh, with all her pictures
3: in it. Well, that and I mean, even from a character standpoint, what did Jamie have at the beginning of Halloween for? Uh, She had a foster uh, family with a big sister. I mean, who doesn't look up to their big sibling? You know, growing Mm -hmm. up, my Big brother was everything to me. Jamie, her big sister, foster sister, doesn't really care about her at the beginning. You know, her parents are deceased, and the only family that she has is a mass murderer. You know that people make fun of her for. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's easy right from the get go to latch onto this little sweet character because I mean, she has nothing going for her. You know, you want her to overcome that, and what I think Halloween Four does so well is before. The kind of danger comes into the movie as far as the residents of Haddonfield. You learn to love every single one of these characters, Mm -hmm. even the minor characters. I mean, I know it's not blatantly addressed, but I know the original intention was uh, Lindsay, the friend of Rachel that drives them to the place, was Mm -hmm. supposed to be Lindsay Wallace, kind of grown up 10 years later. Mm -hmm. You know, and just the idea of the city, no one got out of it after the original aftermath you know just the city of people dealing with what happened and trying to make sense of their lives and who they were Mm -hmm. and what they were a part of when it comes to the city it's so easy to get on board with that right from the beginning even Mm -hmm. before the shape shows up to kind of like wreak havoc on everything no i'm gonna
2: take a small issue jerry with one thing you've said a few times about rachel is that she's completely selfish in the beginning because i don't necessarily feel that's true or that's fair i mean she's a 17 18 year old girl who's been excited for this date for a long time right i mean really looking forward to it yeah she's told like oh her mom hangs up the phone and is like yeah our sitter canceled you have to cancel your plans and watch right. your your yeah. foster sister. So there's really no time to process and her reaction isn't to argue. It it well she argues, but it's not to like throw a f- pitch of fit, it's not to like scream and yell. It's almost playful banter. She's like, "Geez, you know, you're messing up my future relationship and all the way like she takes it to the point of like, you know, you might not get any grandkids now because I have to cancel my date tonight." So there's almost a playfulness to it overall. But- and and Jamie hears this and is obviously really sad, and what does Rachel do? Rachel doesn't say, well, serves her right. She immediately goes to Jamie and says, all right, we can go trick-or-treating if you want. We can go for ice cream. I'm really sorry if I hurt your feelings. That's yeah. not the mark of a really selfish person. That's the part, mark of a
3: person, I think, being emotionally honest. No, I, I understand that, and I'm I'm not arguing or saying you're wrong. But at the same point, counterpoint to that, her whole demeanor is a, about herself. Even from the beginning, even the, from the beginning, she's talking about you know not wanting to eat something because you know she's on a diet. She wants to appeal mm-hmm. to, to, to Brady and all this stuff. A hundred percent of her desire is trying to impress this guy, you know. And I I, I mean I could yeah, be but wrong. those eyebrows I, though. No, no, I, I understand, but I could be wrong. But at the same point, I, I mean, even growing up, I always felt like apologizing to, apologizing to Jamie was only because Jamie saw that. Do you know what I mean? Like, we've we've all been there to, at some point of our lives where we're just kind of only thinking about ourselves. And it's mm-hmm. only like when faced with the reality of the situation that you kind of feel bad and realize that you're not, you're not the focal point of the world. You know what I mean? I, I feel like, and maybe I I kind of, worded it wrong when I said she's completely selfish from the beginning. But what I mean like really is that she kind of doesn't see the whole picture until is kind of brought to her face. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. she doesn't realize that like there's other people kind of going through stuff and, you know, and as a teenager, you know, who isn't kind of kind of like only focused on themselves. I don't mean that she's a bad person. I mean, per se, like she kind of only saw the big picture when Jamie was kind of, in danger, and she's realizing, wow, it is my job to protect this kid. Hmm. I think, too,
2: though, you see when she loses, I mean, A, how do you lose Jamie trick-or-treating? Like, she literally turns her head for 30 seconds, and Jamie is completely gone. Um, But she freaks out. I mean, she does, like, really look for her, at least,
3: well, I mean that and it's easy to lose a kid when the kids like instantly shacking up and hanging out with the kids that completely called her a loser and an orphan and mm-hmm. made fun of the fact that her mom's dead. I mean <laughs> I mean I guess that's Jamie's fault, you know? Like I mean mm-hmm. as a kid I I held grudges as a kid. Anyone that would make fun of my mom even though I wasn't close to my mom, anyone that made fun of my mom, they I wanted them dead. I didn't go trick or treating with them.
2: <laughs> oh, man. So what else can we say about about Rachel because I think that she, she is one of the better final girls. And I honestly don't think that she gets her. I don't think that she gets the credit that others do overall. Like she, I could almost hold her up there with like not quite as high as Ginny in Friday part two, but not too far below that. And I think it's because she's, you know, killed off so casually in Friday the 13th part five that we don't regard her. Um, a Friday, the Halloween part five that we don't regard her like we should, but I think she's a pretty great character overall and a pretty tough character.
4: I she, did, and she's a okay. protector. You know, she's one of the mm. things that were not offered in a lot of Friday, the 13th films is anyone serving as protector. If you think mm-hmm. about what she did through Halloween four and even in through, you know, as far as she got into Halloween five is that she always was putting, she was always ultimately there for Jamie. Hmm. Even, and, and she, of course, had no idea the scope of what she was facing in these situations. But she still, as, as especially remarkable for an adoptive sister, the instinct was there for her to protect Jamie. And, and her love for her, and even, like, all, a lot of people shit on Part 5, but when you're looking at Part 5, when, when uh, she first shows up to visit Jamie... And Jamie's like, what do you have to surprise me with? Kind of a thing. You know? And that interplay between them in that moment is all the fun that they aren't really allowed in. Mm-hmm. So as bleak as part five is, it gives us a glimpse into the sort of more realistic world of their relationship. than, than part four of us in a lot of ways. And it's further testament to the fact that she's more survivor. She's a proactive, like, protector. She's, she's the guardian angel in a series that really doesn't have any guardian angels. Because even Loomis is largely ineffective against Michael Myers, clearly. I mean, mm. sequels and how many movies and how many people died on watch while he allegedly knew everything about Michael and what his intentions were.
3: Oh, totally. And I, I think one of the many great things about Rachel is, you know, even though I said that I, I, I do – I d- indeed feel that, like she's kind of selfish at the beginning. I think my favorite heroes or my favorite characters in any films are the ones that kind of start out as something small and rise above to be something special when it faced with adversity, you know? And I, I think the character of Rachel Carruthers kind of speaks on that. You know, by the end of four, I mean, how many times has she put her life on the line for this kid who mm-hmm. ultimately? really, I mean, like I said, isn't even her blood relative. You know what I mean? Like like she is just, it feels like she knows that she's destined to protect this kid. And I think that that's what makes 5 that much more heartbreaking, is that this person that went above and beyond to protect someone is just kind of killed so just Almost like a second thought in Five. And, you know, I'm not even trashing that. I actually love Five very much. Uh, but I, I also think another thing about Four that maybe people don't think about or don't talk about it much, as much is the cinematography. I mean, you know, Peter Collister shot the film, and I, I think it just looks gorgeous. And it's such a good film. And it, it kind of has a cinematography that you don't see in a lot of slasher films. And it, it's interesting that... You know, he went on to shoot Problem Child and Poetic Justice of all movies. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, like Halloween Four is kind of like the the low end on the totem pole for him as far as career. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the film looks great. I think it's one of the best looking Halloween films in the entire franchise. I think I love the
2: lighting of the movie overall. I love some of the candlelit scenes. Um, I caught something on my last viewing of it. There's a scene where the deputy and, oh God, I'm drawing, I think it's um, Kelly are speaking to one another. And when you look in the background, like way in the background is Michael, um, very similar to how he would appear in part one or part two. You can just see the outline of the mask way in the background. And. It's a really subtle thing. They don't really draw that much attention to it. And I think I've seen this movie a dozen times, and that was the first time that I had ever noticed it. I think Grady's death against that big bay window and the moonlight streaming in from it. It's actually a scene, Mm -hmm. um, I think, that Joss Whedon kind of replicates in one of the Buffy the Vampire Slayer episodes with the death of um, Jenny Callender at the hands of Angelus. I thought that was a little nod to uh, Halloween 4 with... Um, Brady's death yeah I really did feel like I'm like hey that it reminded me of that in watching. and watching it I think that's a really grotesque but beautiful scene uh, at the same time overall um, getting back to a little bit of the characters like I you know you have a character like Brady who is kind of a scumbag um, the moment his date is can you see it the moment that Rachel cancels his date he immediately looks up and eyeballs Kelly like his plan is set in motion less than two seconds after his date is canceled. We kind of knew where he was going to end up that night and he doesn't look all that disappointed overall. Um, but even he has this kind of redemptive arc where, you know, he ends up sacrificing himself. Um, as I watch my old cat like slap my kitten in the face for no reason, even he, uh, ends up redeeming himself by protecting these two women.
3: Um, well, I, I think that's what Halloween 4 is, essentially, is it's a film about people redeeming themselves. You know, you have you have uh, Rachel, you have Brady, you have so many people that kind of find their inner courage throughout the film. And what I what I think is funny, and I've always loved this line, and it's one of the most quotable lines from any Halloween movie is that very scene in in the kind of like pharmacy slash costume pair, the place And what I love about Halloween 4 the most, more than like the really deep, I think, themes that go on, is how quotable the movie is. Mm -hmm. You know, you you think about Carpenter's original and there's like totally, but other than that, you know, maybe, you know, one good scare, that kind of stuff. But the fuck you Wade scene in (laughs) Halloween 4, I mean, we've all known one douchebag named Wade. We've all, you know, in our life, there has to be at least one. So that is the one scene of that film that I could watch over and over and over that it just it takes that it takes that dread that the whole movie has set up before it and kind of gives you that kind of like, you know, like spirited kind of carefree mentality for a little bit that you find yourself laughing before like the, the shit hits the fan, essentially, you know? And what's funny is you never see Wade again after no. that scene, right? No. He's just,
2: Wait, he's just Wade, Wade, moved,
3: move, Wade moved to another city that yeah. very day because he was so embarrassed. Wade is in to there just, to get, or something.
2: Yeah. Wade just lives to get dunked on, and then that's it. That's it for him in the movie. It's great. <laughs> okay. So speaking of the pharmacy scene, I kind of want to talk about some of the nitpicks I have with Halloween 4. Number one, yeah. does anyone else find it really unsavory that this little pharmacy is selling the same mask that this dude who 10 years ago killed 16 people on one night and like okay. hey here's this mask from that yeah. night
4: let me speak to this comment I made earlier of uh, Iowa Velisca Iowa has nothing in terms of like draw it really only has its, its history with this one axe murder which is fucking horrendous uh huh They have in town, well, for many years they had in town, a museum that had three axes hanging in the window, along with a billboard that proudly proclaimed Axe Murder Museum. And (laughs) in front of the house is a sign that was, it used to be, in this shitty, like, haunted house, blood-spattered font, it said Velisca Axe Murder House. And thank God, actually, clean that up now, and they've actually given it a proper... (laughs) As silly as this sounds, it has a proper font and a little more respectable presentation. Where it still says Velisca Axe Murder House," but at least it's not in blood-dripping letters now. So, what I will say is this: that town, whether everyone agrees with it or not, has been forced by the world to embrace its legacy. Mm-hmm. It's not outside the realm of reason
0: that has. Well, that-
4: would experience the same because yeah. towns become known. It, we, when. I mean, I grew up in, in Iowa and in Wisconsin where all my family's from, so Milwaukee was part of the general discussion, but I would argue for the world at large, Milwaukee is known for one person, and it, I, I would be interested to hear if either of you would know who that person is. It's Ed Gein, right? No, Ed Gein was in Plainfield, Wisconsin. Oh,
3: yeah, Wisconsin. Okay, yeah, right, yeah.
4: Milwaukee is Jeffrey Dahmer's territory. Oh, yeah, you're right. That's, that's where his apartment was. That's where all of his hmm. crimes took place. And well, most of his crimes. And and so like to the world, Milwaukee is is Jeffrey Dahmer's territory. And they give tours like guided tours of the places now and stuff like that. So I'm not saying everyone agrees with it, but it is legitimately understandable that Haddonfield would stock the mask of. That's sort of like paying, not tribute, but that plays off of the history of the area. And this is also a point. A lot of people say the mask in Part 4 sucks and the mask in Part 4 and Part 5 is worse. Well, the mask in Part 4
2: is a ripoff.
4: Yeah, it's it's a marketed piece of merchandise based on what people thought the mask in Part 1 and 2 was. And what's funny Uh about that, as the guy who worked at Trankus Films and was dealing directly with all the merchandise, a majority of the merchandise that it's come in the wake of Halloween 78 has been from that same perspective. And that's how a lot of it, a lot of people point at and go, what the fuck? How did that happen? It's because people are, are, it's like in their minds, there's an imprint and there's a legacy, but then there's also the reality of what actually existed. And they don't always coincide. So anyway, the long answer to that question is, I think it's totally plausible.
2: Yeah, and you well, can that, even say using the mask, like how it looks different, is you can say, well, there weren't like a lot of pictures of Michael Myers um, right. kind of running around the street. So you're kind of going off of like memory or firsthand description of this is what he was wearing as well. So you're going to have those imperfections. Well, the uh, shoulder pads are a different story, though.
3: Yeah. <laughs> that and I, I, if somebody on, I believe it was Twitter had a good point and I really wish I knew who they were. If, if you listen to the show, please tell me it was you, uh, that they had a point that, you know, this is 1988, a whole decade after the first film and the mask from the first one, this, the company that would make it in 78, you know, why would they make the same exact mask 10 years later? You know what I mean? Like like you guys said, no one had a clear picture of Michael Myers. So I I don't think, you know, it's not the same mask that he grabs Mm -hmm. in four. You know, my issue with the mask from four has always been this. My issue was always 100 percent the poster versus the product. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? If the poster had shown something else as a kid, I wouldn't have walked into it and gone. What the hell? You know what I mean? The poster showed the original mask, and it's such an iconic. I think it's Halloween Four. The poster, I think, to this day, is my favorite film poster of all time. But you know, I, I understand where people's frustration comes from. You do not get what you're shown on that poster. Right. But with that being said, you know, like I said, it wouldn't even be the same mask ten years later. Even the scream mask, you know, the same company that put out the mask from Scream, it's a little bit different a decade later. You know,
4: Wait. Mm-hmm do because that poster could be playing in the same sandbox as the mythology around michael in part four uh-huh. for talking about what came before mm-hmm. and then experiencing what is now and yeah. they are they are not the same it is not the same mask it is not the same person at the same age it is not i mean it, it's many things that are different and so i've heard this argument about the mask on the on the poster for part four forever and i maintain the argument that it is making reference to what came before and what people knew and what people would know heading into Halloween 4. This is the guy you know. But what Halloween 4 does a good job of establishing from the start is the path that leads him into the guy you're going to know now. So it's not a jarring transition where he wakes up after part two and he still has the mask on somehow and it just looks really fucking different. Like... (laughs) And, and this goes again to your point about the transit four to five, where that's much more jarring, where he yeah. goes into the well, heads down the river, and all of a sudden his neck is six inches longer, and all of a sudden his nose is bigger, and the rest of these things like, wait a minute. That's not the same. Like that's different than what they had to do here. You know what I mean? Well,
3: that ends. That I mean, the jump from two to four. I understand it. It was a decade jump. You know, obviously the mask is going to be different. Even the company that within the movie's fictional narrative, the mask is going to be different. But five takes place a year later and is supposed. It is supposed to be the same mask as four. So I understand the frustration right. for five. You know what I mean? Like even even my son, he's ten years old, and five is the the movie where he's just like, I do not get this mask. You know, it looks nothing like four. I wish they had kept the bandage look. Yeah, I really.
2: And, and it'd be you know, this is a, a great movie for what ifs. Like, what if they decided. Severe veer away from the Strode connection. Um, what do we get? Well, we, well, we get like curse of Michael Myers at that point. Um, what if we kept
3: the bandage look overall? Cause that is a, that's a badass look. Uh, I, I, think, I think Tom Morga would be happy if they kept the bandage look. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he played he played Michael in those scenes. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I just think that looks so
2: cool. I just you know it's much much different overall. Um, but you know, and I think that speaks a lot to A Cod's involvement, saying this is what a Halloween movie has to be going forward, and it's going to be tied into the Strode family, and also this is going to be semi the look of the mask. We're going to have. You know, the the jumpsuit, and we're going to have the mask no, no matter what overall. Um, another thing really, you know, we were speaking earlier about—now I completely forget, I'm sorry— we have to edit this part a little bit. Um, oh, one thing we talk about with the police force of the movie overall. This movie kind of hinges on one huge glaring mistake that the police department makes in this movie when they finally have Jamie and Rachel kind of corralled and knowing that like. Jamie is going to be the target instead of like, let's drive her as far out of town as fast as we can. Like, let's go two States over. They decide, well, let's kind of put them in one house with one cop and lock it down. And that's, you know, to me, that's always just a glaring mistake, character mistake in the movie. And I get, you can't have perfect logic or you don't really have good move, you know, really any horror movies at that point. But this one seemed pretty
3: egregious. The kind of deputy or cop that was assigned to watch over them basically spent his entire time rocking back and forth in the rocking Mm -hmm. chair. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) I'm not dissing any police officers, but if I was a police officer, I'd probably be at that door holding that shotgun ready to blast someone in the face. Like, I think that guy was just so chill, Mm -hmm. just, you know, just just hanging out in the rocking chair. I mean, it's funny to watch. It's kinda of easy to see how Haddonfield's police force got
2: slaughtered two movies in a row. Like they're not exactly a well oiled machine
3: here. Well, I can understand them getting slaughtered by a man in black with an Uzi, you know? But I mean, you know, there's there's no way Michael should have infiltrated that house in four, but I mean it's fun to watch. Hmm. So we're getting
2: a little bit long here, so I do want to talk about one more thing before we kind of have our final thoughts.
3: What do we think of the ending of this movie? I think that it is one of the best horror endings of all time. And that is the other scene that I kind of wanted to mention regarding Loomis. There is such a pain in Loomis's face when he sees Mm -hmm. Jamie on the top of that stairs that he doesn't give a flying what the repercussions would be. He's ready to shoot Jamie right in the Mm -hmm. head, you know, because he doesn't want to go, he doesn't want to go through this crap again. He already went through it with Michael. He's not going to do it again. Loomis did not care. And he was ready to shoot a child at that moment. Like that's how, that's how emotionally devastated he was by the fourth film.
4: I think it totally served the purpose that it needed to, which is to discussion among fans and to encourage people sort of hypothesizing about what may be next. I remember my buddy Matt and I, who was my like, horror pal when I was a kid, he's the one who got to subscribe to Fangoria and then pass them off to me between classes and school and elementary school, like contraband. And we were at a writer's conference at Cornell College in Mount Vernon, Iowa, and we were riding the bus home. And I'll never forget this. He and I just spent the entire bus ride back from Cornell to, to our school discussing what happens next like i can't believe this like is it going to be jamie or or like what's the connection with michael and it was very much and any you know if it's if it's grabbing two kids that way it had to have captured everyone in that regard everyone's wondering what's going to happen next so regardless of how halloween five handled that i think that it set up something truly intriguing in a series that had sort of lost intrigue by this point, and something interesting that could have been explored further had the people involved with the rest of the franchise been brave enough to go there. Mm-hmm. And then it just—it
2: uh, really is a stunning ending. I mean, it it does bring. If there was never a Halloween Five, it brings. This series back full circle where the first movie ends right. with a young boy murdering his sister this movie ends with the implication of a young girl murdering her stepmother, her mother for all intents and purposes. And that, you know, we had talked about this idea of just evil being out there in the world. Uh, And Jerry, to your point of saying how a lot of times these illnesses are passed down, now it's been passed down to this young, innocent girl that we've spent this whole movie not only rooting for, caring for, but being afraid for. Um, But you spend this whole movie being like, terrified for her and then to have her do what she did at the end. But not only that, when Meeker pulls the gun away from Loomis, he doesn't know that he's aiming his gun at a six year old girl. He's just saying, Hey, I'm going to not let this guy shoot a civilian. And then the look on on Meeker's face when he sees that it's Jamie, but also realizes what, how far Loomis was willing to go
3: is beautiful. I mean, it's a really great great closing shot there's a drop in meeker's mouth and mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you've noticed it but i've noticed it every single time i watch a movie where you know he's so involved in the action of taking loomis's gun putting it mm-hmm. down that you know his mouth is kind of raised up a little bit mm-hmm. and as soon as he sees jamie his eyes droop and his mouth just kind of sinks mm-hmm. yeah and i think it's one of the most heartbreaking looks ever because even meeker mm-hmm. at that very second has this look of, oh my god, this is where it's going next. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's such a good cliffhanger.
2: And I think more so than any other series at this point, the Halloween franchise was not afraid to end on a dark note. Yeah, the ending of Halloween 1, where the shape has escaped into the world and disappeared into the night, and that evil can be anywhere and around every corner. Part 3, I think um Jerry, you, Izzy, and I were all in agreement that those, you get a lot of dead kids on your hand come November 1st, <laughs> right? And now, yeah, you have, and now you have this implication that Jamie Lloyd is now going to be your next Michael Myers. And to your point, Justin, it would have been like a bold move to have your next movie set around this child killer. And what a taboo that would have been. I mean, I can't think of Maybe Bloody Birthday, and the tone of that movie, is so different from this movie. And Children of the Corn, I guess. But again, much, much different movie than what you're getting with the with the Halloween series overall. Well, I even,
3: even Mikey. I don't know mm-hmm. if you guys are familiar with that movie, but that was one I really loved in, mm. in, in, the, in the 90s. It's basically this manipulative, murderous child. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a fun movie to watch. It's called Mikey. Mm-hmm. I, I think you would pick it.
2: So what else do we have to say about the town of Haddonfield and its inhabitants? Like, I know we didn't uh, mention Bucky, who is one of my favorites. <laughs> Bucky's
3: construction worker. Smash. He's so easy to fly through the air yeah. into a power line. No, I think it's the ridiculous. one thing that can be said about the town of Haddonfield is they're untrained assholes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in, in, I think in the uh, franchise of Halloween, more... Innocent people get murdered than mm-hmm. any other franchise, whether it be you know Halloween 2's Ben Tramer, Tramer, you know, God rest his soul, rest in peace, Ben Tramer. You you would have been something special. Or Halloween four, I forget his name, you know. But I mean, that guy was just like in the park and they just mowed him down because the yep. bushes, you know? Like I, I yeah. hadn't fucked up. But I also yep. think uh, you know. I don't know if he's from Adenfield, but one of my favorite scenes in the movie, and I know Justin appreciates this character too, because I mean I interviewed Justin years ago, and one of the things that we kind of clicked about on this character is Reverend Sayer. Oh Jesus! How do we oh, not talk about my him? God, that is one of the coolest characters ever committed to film, I think, and I would love to see a movie just about that guy and his quest to kill those demons. He has to be cousins with with
2: Crazy Ralph.
4: <laughs> right? And it offers for me, you talk Jerry about your favorite moment with, with Loomis. And I, I agree that that moment is powerful in the gas station and the diner. But for me, anytime anyone asks about my favorite Loomis moment, it is absolutely the moment with him and, and Reverend Sayers. He gets in the truck and they start talking about their sort of shared goal, their shared prophecy to, to topple evil. And the mm-hmm. fact that, that they're both chasing the dragon and then he hands them a bottle. It is such a physical Mm -hmm. manifestation of, of the hunt they have both been on and what it offers people more than any other moment in the entire Halloween franchise is a humanization of Loomis because he smiles. You know, yeah,
2: Loomis. He recognizes it's a very similar kind of crazy that he
3: has. Yeah. Yes. Well, that it's, it's, I think there's two scenes. I think there's two scenes in the franchise that really shows that side of Loomis. Uh, the first one is Loomis trying to scare the shit out of Lonnie in the first film. Get your ass out there! And he has such a like devilish look on his face, like. <laughs> He's and so in the fourth. Himself. <laughs> no, right? And then the fourth film, it's with Reverend Sayers. It's like Lubis has that smile, like almost a break from the hell that is coming his mm-hmm. way. Right. Kind of enjoy this soft moment with this fellow traveler who seems to be on the hunt for the very same thing right. he is.
2: Absolutely. Well, it's this recognition that you're not completely alone in the world, that others share your mission, that you don't have to walk this completely lonely path.
3: And that's what I'm saying about Halloween 4 you know it's it's on face value yeah i understand that it's very much on the surface a slasher movie people discount that and the reviews were brutal when it came mm-hmm. out But I will always stand on that hill declaring that Halloween 4, like I said, is a film about identity, about finding yourself in something and finding your part in something, whether it's Jamie, whether it's Loomis in that one scene with Reverend Sayers, whether it's so many other things. You know, even Mm -hmm. Rachel trying to find, trying to feel a part of something. She wants to feel a part of something with Brady. You know what I mean? Well, like she Halloween. wants to get filled by Brady, is what you're right? saying. Right, that too. I was kind of being around with that, but you Sorry. were right. up. <laughs> but no, I think Halloween 4, of all movies, is about that. And I, I think it's just a perfect film in general about it. Mm-hmm. I do think that it's important, like I said in Halloween 3, and I maybe Halloween 2, or you know, all those episodes, I do think that we should discuss, even briefly, the contributions from Alan Howarth. Okay. Because Halloween 4 uh, – wow, that's crazy. Sorry, I just saw an uh, uh, article on something. Uh, Alan Howard, I think, added more to Halloween 4 as far as soundtrack – than most people did in the entire series aside from carpenter Mm -hmm. uh you know i love the soundtrack for the first halloween with a passion i think uh howard and carpenter doing the second film is great halloween three is great but when it comes to writing and having music on as a background my go-to album has always been for over a decade now has been the halloween four soundtrack i think it is one of the best pieces of original music for a a film ever composed i Mm -hmm. think it's It it invokes that spirit, that kind of aesthetic of Halloween so perfectly. And I I just have nothing but great things to say about it.
4: I agree. I mean, I've been a fan from the beginning and I've I've bought every, every release of every Halloween soundtrack that has ever existed as they came out. Mm -hmm. I mean, Howarth is, is kind of the unsung hero in the Halloween franchise in many ways, because as much as John has you know, rightfully accepted the throne for having written the theme and all the music in one and two and three, Howarth took it to different extents in the following sequels. And I love his contributions here. And I always felt that, that the Halloween 4th, what, what is great about it is how consistent the atmosphere is throughout. So it, it sets the table in the beginning with that mm-hmm. sequence we discussed. But then it also maintains that as a thread throughout the rest of the music for it. And it interweaves the theme here and there, sometimes in really subtle ways, sometimes in blatant ways, mm-hmm. but it does it with mastery. And I, I think it's one of Alan's absolute masterpieces, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
2: So, Justin, as we record this or as we release this episode, we are just past the Halloween season and we are just past the release of, I think, the latest Blu-ray you've worked on, correct? The Blob comes out this Tuesday?
4: Correct. Yeah, the 29th. Yep.
2: So, you know, it looks stunning. It looks like there's a ton of material with it overall. Um, What do people have to look forward to if they go ahead and order this? This is from Shout, correct? Yeah, it's from Shout and Scream Factory. Scream Factory. So what would you say, like, give us your, what would you say people, why would people, oh my God, I am getting to the point where I can barely talk, so <laughs> please bear with me for a moment. Um, tell people what they have to look forward to when they order order this re-release of The Blob.
4: There's so much on there. There's. A, I have a new commentary track with, where it's just me and Shawnee Smith. Mm-hmm she is so charming and sweet on that track, watching the movie for the first time since it came out. And it's, it's so, I just love how endearing she is on that track. Mm -hmm. A lot of interviews from all sides of the production from directors on through special effects on through, I mean, like really you name it. And, and I, my next two releases, I had no breaks on and that's the Mm blob and big trouble in middle China. And the, The list on Big Trouble was just announced a couple of days ago too, mm-hmm. and on both of them, I just never, I just couldn't stop myself. Mm-hmm. More and more people on board, and it's such an honor to be a part of both of these. So, I, I mean, the Blob is a solid release. It is far and away the most extensive disc you're ever going to find on this thing, and the same thing for Big Trouble. Plus, with Big Trouble, we have a steelbook. There's a vinyl. Package you can get. There's a lot of different packages at shopfactory.com. If you want to take a look at those and and see hmm. what you can find, and then I have a whole bunch of other stuff in queue after that too. Well,
3: that There's, and uh, from from an you know outside Earth perspective, you know, because I had no uh, involvement in those releases. Just I mean, as a fan, you know, Screen Factory sent me a copy of the blob Blu-ray already to check out. And I spent – I'm not joking – at least five days going through all of those special features. <laughs> and honestly, as a fan of the film <laughs> since the beginning – I mean it was one of the first films that I saw in the theater by myself. As a lifelong fan of the Blob remake, this is l- – listeners, hear you me. This is the best release you will ever get on this movie. <laughs> like It is not like an, uh, an interview for five minutes from each person. It is almost a career retrospective for with every single person involved almost. And it is I mean I I had so much fun watching this Blu-ray and I, I could not recommend it enough. And this is one of those movies when you look
2: at the eighties and you look at the big horror movie remakes from the from the nineteen eighties, there's three that really jump out. There's the thing, there's the fly, and there's the blob. I think that are three examples of movies that show how original and how good a remake can be done um, if you take a great idea and put your own spin on it. So this is something I'm looking forward to diving into in my own, too, in the coming weeks um, as well. So I'm looking forward to kind of jumping on in with it. What else do we have that we're working on right now, Justin? Because you are a very busy man with a lot of irons in the fire.
4: <laughs> Just, oh, my God. Yeah, understatement for sure, and I appreciate that. I actually just, I contributed an interview with cinematographer Mark Irwin on the Mm -hmm. the fly box set that's coming out, too. And I'm not sure what the street date is on that, but it combines all the fly and fly remake and sequel films into one box. And so I have a great interview with Mark Irwin on that one, on uh, the the remake of The Fly with Cronenberg. And... Big Trouble comes out pretty soon. Again, that's available for pre-order. I'm just wrapping work on Let's Scare Jessica to Death and Body Parts and Pet Cemetery Two.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
4: all three of those are currently available for pre-order from Shout Factory. And then there's a bunch of stuff that has not yet been announced that I'm so excited to, sh- to spill the beans on. And as soon as I do, I'll let you guys know. But as of now, I don't have. A, they haven't announced anything else beyond those. Okay. Been- films, but definitely hard at work on a lot of stuff. And I
2: Excellent. The, about it. Well, thank you, Justin. Thank you so much for joining us once again. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this nearly two-hour dive
1: into Halloween 4, The Revenge of Michael Myers. We'll be back next week with special guest Brian Collins from Birth, Movies, Death, and Horror Movie A Day to talk about The Revenge of Michael Myers, Halloween Part 5. Go ahead and give us a follow over on Twitter. We interact with everybody over there. We really don't do Instagram or Facebook. Really, if you want to talk to us, it's over on Twitter. Um, and one thing we were really desperate for, if you guys have go ahead, whether you get our show on iTunes or Stitcher, Spotify, leave us a review um, if you can. Take two minutes, couple lines, five-star review. It goes a super long way for people finding our show we hope people are digging what we're doing so far seems like it so we know that the halloween season is sadly over for the year but we have seven more halloween movies to bring to you and some really cool special guests along the way so until next week thanks everyone for listening and we're looking forward to talking to you again